You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. During my summer sabbatical, I was chewing a lot on our mission measures, just thinking about enjoying God fully, taking a risk, and living as family. I was not working on my sabbatical. I was just thinking about these things. And I felt like the Lord was impressing on my heart a little bit about this idea of taking a risk. And so what does that mean today? Why is it that I'm taking a risk today? Well, primarily it's because I'm used to teaching your kids and students. I'm not used to being up here in front of adults. And so that feels a little risky to to me right now, but I'm trying to just take a step and trust him, much like you do. So in our Rise Up series, uh, we've been in the book of Daniel. And in this book, if you haven't really noticed, this is all about the sovereignty of God. Kings and kingdoms come and go, but our God is sovereign and he rules and reigns over each one of these kingdoms. And his kingdom is one that endures forever and ever. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dave preached on Daniel chapter 4. And this is an interesting chapter because it's Nebuchadnezzar's letter to the nations. And it's really his praise of the Lord. And at the end of this chapter, it was through God's grace and God's great mercy that Nebuchadnezzar realized that there is one true God who is sovereign over all. And we have this awesome moment of restoration in verse 27 with Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar realized who he is in light of who God is. He came to the end of himself and his pride and found God there. And isn't it like that for us as well, that we have to get to the end of ourself to find where God is? And he's there waiting for us. And as I was reading Daniel chapter 5, I came to the section about the writing on the wall, and I realized that we too have writings on our walls. Thanks to people like Chip and Joanna Gaines and Hobby Lobby, we all have some writings on our walls. And I snapped a few pictures of some writings that are on the walls in our home. The first one is a universal truth that love begins at home. And because we're good Christians, We have verses on our living room wall. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And then before Holly and I go to bed, we remind one another that I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And the final writing on the wall, it's not on my wall I wish it were, but this was on the wall of the AFC Richmond football team locker room. And for those Ted Lasso fans out there, the fourth principle of 
total football strategy is believe. Yes, believe. Belief is a great gift of God. The writing on the wall is this idiom that we use in our culture when we say that something is over and it's going to fail. It's going to come to an end. And a lot of times, this saying is, is used in sports. It can be used during a season where a team may have some deficiencies, and halfway through the season, the pontificators start to go, the writing's on the wall, this team's not going to make it to the postseason. Two weeks ago, I was sitting out on my deck watching a, a game on a beautiful Saturday, and it was a UNC-Virginia game. And if you remember from that game, if anybody watched it, UNC takes a controlling lead throughout the first half of that game. And they're scoring, and they come out of halftime, and they, they take an, an even larger lead. But somewhere in the midst of that third quarter, Virginia starts doing things a little differently, and then all of a sudden, UNC's offense bogs down, and their defense can't stop Virginia. And I remember thinking to myself, well, the writing's on the wall. If things don't change, this is going to happen, uh, and it's going to end badly. They're going to fail, and they did. They lost that game. So as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about the day the, the daily devotional that Holly and I have been doing through the book of Daniel. And we got to chapter 5, and the devotion started out with this question, imagine if you knew the exact number of days that you had to live, would it change the way you live? Your writing was on the wall. We paused right there for a second and asked each other this question. And before I give you our answers, let me share a little bit about our personalities and you'll understand why we answered in such a way. But I am someone who's a little bit analytical, um, risk adverse. I say risk conscience and risk aware, but most people would say risk adverse. And I value safety and security. My wife, she is an adventurer. She wants to go grab life by the tail and do all the different things and have the experiences that life can offer. So you see, we're really, at times, two very different people. So back to the question, imagine if you knew the exact number of days that you had to live. And immediately my palms began to sweat. And I, I blurted out this, I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that. I want to be ignorant about this information. And who would want to know this? And she's looking at me like, I, I, I want to know that information. And I was like, you're kidding, right? And she's like, no, I would want to know because that means I can plan to go do all the things. I can finally go jump out of that airplane that I wanted to do, and I can check off all the bucket list items that I have. I want to have a living funeral. And I was like, time out. <laughs> is this something that you just made up, or is this something real? No, I'm going to invite all these people on these experiences with me, and I'm going to share with them about what they mean to me. 
And, and then they're going to share what I've meant to them. And I thought, you and I cannot be two more totally different people. I said, I'm going to lock myself in a room. I'm going to pray to God and I'm going to be like, God, please take this away from me. Whatever it is, take me out of this disaster and this certain doom. I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to overthink this situation and how I can get, it out, get out of it. But what about you? Would you want to know your number of days that you had left to live? And if you did, what would you do? Would you change the way you lived? And I want you to take a moment just to think about that. And then hold on to that thought for a little bit. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter five. Chapter five has such a story as it documents a day of a king and his kingdom coming to an end. And I've titled this sermon, Are You Secure? Really asking this question, where is your security found? And Lord willing, we are gonna step through this entire chapter today. And I'm gonna point out some things that I observed and have been chewing on as I studied this chapter. So let's go to verse one. And it says in verse one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So abruptly, we are introduced to this King Belshazzar. If you remember, chapter four has Nebuchadnezzar still ruling and reigning, but there is 20 years that has happened in between these two chapters. And there has been three additional kings after Nebuchadnezzar, and it is commonly understood that the king right now is somebody named Nabonidus. My North Carolina accent will come out and it will say Nabonidus, but his name is Nabonidus. So then who is this king Belshazzar? Well, for starters, let's not confuse him with Belteshazzar, Daniel's given name when he was taken into Babylon. Now, what's interesting is that Daniel's use and inclusion of the name King Belshazzar has really brought into question the historical accuracy and validity and reliability of this book of Daniel. Outside of the Bible, there were no known artifacts and writings that mentioned the name King Belshazzar as a Babylonian king. Now, then in 1853, there were some archeological discoveries and, and one of those that was made was something called Nabonidus's cylinder. It's this clay cylinder and on it was an inscription and there was a prayer from Nabonidus. He's praying to this moon god to guard him and his son, Belshazzar. And that cylinder sits in the British Museum right now. You can Google it and see the whole thing. So Nabonidus is his father, Belshazzar is his son. Belshazzar is considered to be a co-regent of Babylon. It's thought that during chapter five, Nebuchadnezzar, 
Nebuchadnezzar has been defeated by the Medes and Persian, and he has fled the scene, which has left Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, it seems to me that often when scholarship is arguing about the validity of the Bible and of God's word time and time again, the word of God is proven true. And a lot of times it's through these archaeological discoveries, given enough time, the truth comes out. If you are a parent, you understand this principle. Given enough time, the truth will come out. So there's this King Belshazzar, and he's making a great feast. Your version may say banquet, but this was no ordinary banquet like you would think of a banquet today. This is a party. And even though that it mentions that there is a thousands of lords there, it, that is a widely uh, accepted as a round number. There are many, many thousands of people here. Let's jump down to verse 2. It says, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine. Now, this is more than just tasting. Belshazzar is drinking deeply. And this party is going off the rails very soon. So when he tasted the wine and he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, let's pause again. Wait, didn't you just tell me that Nabonidus is his father? Yes, I did. This word, his father, it's a little confusing. It's not used in a familial sense. This is, it can be interpreted as predecessor. Some other versions may say um, the word just escaped me, but predecessor or the son may be as a successor. So silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. This points back to chapter 1. and God's sovereignty, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands and all of these vessels of gold into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. That the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Here we see this king, who's a little more than tipsy at this point, is not content with worshiping just his little g-gods, but he is intent on blaspheming the gods of the Jews. He is mocking God by bringing these vessels that were taken out of the temple. And right now, he has no fear in God. And as we will see throughout this chapter, he's not going to mock God and get away with it. I think we also need to remind ourselves a little bit about what's going on currently around Babylon. And so at this time, and it's rather startling when you think about what they're doing and knowing what's going on around them. 
at this exact time of this party outside of the city, the Medo-Persian army is bearing down on Babylon. So Belshazzar must have known that an invasion was going to happen sooner or later. So the question that I have is, how could they be having a party in the midst of an invasion? Was this party to rally and encourage the troops before battle? Or was it a diversion in the face of certain onslaught? Was it, hey, tonight we drink, tomorrow we die? We don't know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that while people are saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them. And we're going to see that. When I think about Belshazzar's overall problem, I wonder if it's something else. Which leads me to my first point, is a misplaced faith leads to false security. A misplaced faith leads to false security. It seems to me that Belshazzar has a misplaced faith that has led to his false sense of security. Now, I was originally going to say that he had a false faith that led to false security. But the more I thought about this, I go, no, I don't think that he has a false faith. I think he has a true faith. A true faith and a belief in himself, his leadership, his kingdom, his army, his lower G gods, and also what the Babylonians have created, this city. Babylon is built to protect him and this kingdom. Now here's some stats real quickly about this strong city. It had main walls that were 50 miles long, 350 feet tall. That's 35 stories. They were 87 feet thick. They said they were so thick that chariots raced on top of them, and a chariot could turn around on top of this. They used to race two of them on top of these chariots, or on top of these walls. Then the city had many walls inside of the city, too. There were 250 guard towers. The Euphrates River ran diagonally through the city. There were these great brass gates that controlled the city entrance. How could anyone possibly invade and capture the city? But it was happening. And Belshazzar has this misplaced faith in his city, its architecture, and its protection that has led to his false sense of security. And I think there's a point in here for us too. We can often have a misplaced faith that leads to a false security. We often place our faith and trust in things like ourselves, our health, our abilities, our culture, our government, our money, our jobs, and our relationships, and even people. And not that these things are all bad, but when we pin our hopes on them and we place them in a place that where only God belongs, we too have a misplaced faith that will lead to false security. Let's move on to verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared. This is supernatural. God intervening 
into the natural world. It has the same visual as Exodus chapter 31 that also describes the commandments as written by God's finger on stone tablets. And, and it wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace up on the lampstand, illuminated for all to see. God's word was not going to be kept in the dark. It was illuminated that everyone would see. Interesting enough, even the idea of plaster mentioned in here created questions about validity. This wasn't a technology that was talked about. But again, archaeology has unearthed these great walls where these great feasts would be held, and they have found a chalk-like substance on them. Again, proving the validity to the story. And then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Have you ever been so terrified, frightened, that your legs give way, your knees knock together? That's the idea. He is terrified. He has gone from being comfortable, confident, secure, drunk, boastful, mocking God, and in an instant, he's stone cold sober, and he is terrified. And if you were Belshazzar, wouldn't you be? Your life just got turned upside down. Verse 7, and then the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. I don't know why they keep going back to these dudes. And then the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple. It's a symbol of royalty and will have a chain of gold around his neck, money, wealth, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this is an interesting title to give. Why would anybody want to be third ruler in a kingdom? But it affirms what we said earlier. Nabonidus is first ruler. He's father, followed by Belshazzar under him. He's second ruler. And the only thing that King Belshazzar can offer is third ruler. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Why? Belshazzar had placed a faith in these people to be able to do a certain work and they have failed him and his faith because it is misplaced is shattered again. And like Belshazzar, our world can flip in an instant. We can lose a job, get a health diagnosis, a pandemic occurs, a relationship falls apart. What could happen that would absolutely rock your world? What are those things that can bring despair and instability into your life? Now, personally, as I shared earlier, I value safety and security. And I think that the best person who knows what is best for me is me. And I trust me a whole lot. 
but I know that I have a misplaced faith in myself and in my abilities that have provided me a very real false sense of security and safety. And because when those abilities get challenged and when I get pressed and pushed outside of my limits, my security and my safety and my world feels shaken. Lord, please help me overcome my unbelief. But what about you? Your misplaced faith might not be similar to mine, but you may find a sense of security around your status, the number of likes to your post, your job, the money that you have. I think the question that you need to ask yourself when you're trying to identify what those things could be is, if it was taken away from me, what would my response be? Am I shaken to the core? Am I responding in anger and fear? Point is, is, the things of this world can and often fail us. A relationship ends. A new government gets voted in. We lose a job. We lose money. We lose status. Would your security be shaken? Where is your faith placed? Is it placed in the things of this world that cannot satisfy and often create a false sense of security? Or is your faith in the one who can only satisfy and offer true security? Let's pick up in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. So here we are introduced to somebody new. She's not overly important to the overarching story here. But what we know is it's not Belshazzar's wife. How do we know that? Well, verse 2 tells us that his wives were at the party with him. And this person was not in the banquet hall. They had heard the ruckus going on and they came into the banquet hall there's thoughts that it's Nabonidus' wife or more likely it's Nebuchadnezzar's widow. And I tend to think that it is his widow just because of what she's getting ready to share with him. She says, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Get a hold of yourself, man. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, your predecessor, your ancestor, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the God were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because he had an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles, and solve problems that were found in this Daniel. Interesting that she uses his Hebrew name here. Whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. I think we should be thankful for the elders 
and the people who go before us that the Lord sovereignly places in our life that have wisdom and who can point us in a right direction in times of despair and give us some hope. And I think that's what the queen has done here. And at this point, I was asking myself this question, and maybe you are too, but does Belshazzar really not know who this Daniel is? And where is Daniel? He was chief prefect over all these wise men in Babylon. Why is he not there with them? I think that Belshazzar knew who Daniel was. And he just didn't want to be around Daniel because, let's face it, people who are far from God do not want to be with godly people. They do not want to be confronted by someone about their sin. And godly people are usually not invited to a party with such debauchery and drunkenness that's going on. And even if Daniel was invited, he wouldn't attend. I think you'd have to ask yourself, if you're getting invited to a party like that, you'd want to know why somebody thinks it's okay to ask you to go. At this time, Daniel is thought to be semi-retired in his 80s, no longer ruler of the providence. And all of these people, and, 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 and he's still faithfully worshiping and serving the Lord. And he's preparing to be used by God. How do I know this? Well, I get a little bit of a glimpse in this in chapter 6, where we'll be next week. But there's these officials in the Medo-Persian government who want to change the laws to get Daniel in trouble. And we see in chapter 6, verse 10, it says that Daniel was in his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel is preparing for this moment. His relationship with God is readying Daniel to confront King Belshazzar. Let's pick up in verse 13. And then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. He's not calling him Belteshazzar, but he's addressing him as one of these exiles of Judah. That's a, that's a slight to Daniel that he probably noticed. You're one of those exiles of Judah whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you and that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can. You can give interpretations and solve problems now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. This king should be acknowledging his true debt to the God that he has mocked. 
and not confuse himself and delude himself into thinking that he can eliminate his debt with these earthly rewards. And then verse 17 says, And Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. And that leads me to our second point, is that a godly faith leads to true security. Daniel has a godly faith that leads to true security. His security is not found in the things of this world. Let's look at the evidence for this point. He is being brought in front of a king who has basically disposed of him, maybe forgotten about him, and he can do anything with Daniel's life at this moment. Yet Daniel stands bold enough and secure enough in his identity and his faith in God that gives him true security, not worried about that this king has his life in his hands at this point. Daniel is not influenced with what this king is offering him. This king is offering power, prestige, money, wealth. All the things that this world covets, values highly, and often provide a false sense of security. Daniel is secure in his identity. He has true security. Do you have a, <clears throat> a godly faith that leads to true security? And like Daniel... Are you enjoying him taking a risk through obedience and taking steps of faith? Now, verses 18 through 21, Daniel is going to give a historical account. Really, he's going to preach to Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to retell his story here, and he's going to preach to him about Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And as I was reading these verses I felt like he had a very different tone than what we saw when he approached Nebuchadnezzar back in cha chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar, he approached with a little bit of timidity and sorrow because he knew what the dream's interpretation was. And he seems to be super bold in this moment when he addresses Belshazzar. He's not even giving him his proper address that a king would normally require. And it felt to me that as I was reading through it, that he was laying into him. He was giving him the business, and I was all for it too. And he very well could have been. But then I thought to myself, Daniel knows how this story is going to end. He walked in to that party, and I bet he saw up on the wall, the writing on the wall, and divinely knew at that point what was going to happen. He had the interpretation in my, his mind. And so when we get to verse 22, I, I wonder if he has some form of compassion here, speaking truth and love when he says this, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Though you knew all of this, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
Belshazzar, your pride and your misplaced faith that has led to your false sense of security and now will ultimately lead to your demise. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar. You heard stories about God's and his great patience and kindness that has led to Nebuchadnezzar's repentance, but you had no wisdom in this. You had head knowledge, but you had no heart change when you heard these stories. And then you went out and you mocked the one true God. You worshiped idols, and in all your ways, you have not honored him. Belshazzar, you knew this. You hardened your heart, and you are without excuse. Your time is going to be up. Often, we know the information but the information doesn't always lead to transformation. How is your heart? Is it soft towards the things of God? Do you have a godly faith that leads to true security? And we're gonna end with our third point here, and that is God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is sure. Verse 24 says, then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has, your, has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. It's over. You have been, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, chain of gold was put around his neck. Proclamation was made about him that he's going to be the third ruler. And then that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. The writing on the wall, many scholars believe that it was Aramaic and the English letters would have looked like something you had seen on the screen. Missing vowels, it's a sound more than anything, but it is definitely a riddle to be solved. And Daniel is the person in position to be that divinely inspired interpreter. His relationship with God made him ready for this task. Is your relationship with God making you ready to speak truth into the life of people, to have wisdom? And for some reason, Belshazzar, he keeps his promise. I don't know why he would do that. He gives Daniel the clothes of purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him. He was going to be third ruler in the kingdom. And we see here that he accepts the reward. After verse 17, he rejected the reward, but now he's going to accept the reward. And I wonder if it's perhaps because Daniel knew that God's judgment was, sh was sure and this reward was going to be meaningless at the end of this night. So he reluctantly accepts it. 
But I can only imagine when he walks back into his house, he's taking off the clothes of purple. He's pulling off the chain around his neck and he's throwing it on the floor because he knows where his true security lies. It doesn't lie in the things of this world. And his, that third leader promise doesn't mean anything because it is over. For Belshazzar, God's judgment was sure. He lost his life in an evasion that night. And for us, we are all guilty and headed for God's wrath and judgment. But Romans says that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from being with God. Believer, you are secure when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Unbeliever, there is eternal security only found in the person of Jesus. Romans goes on to say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me. He died for you. Do you want to know him? He's pursuing you. He's calling and inviting you. He is offering you true security. Not the things that this world values, but true eternal security. And then chapter concludes with verse 31, where we see one kingdom and one king that comes to an end and a new one begins. And there is mystery around Darius the king, and that's gonna have to wait till next week. But know that God is still sovereign, ruling and reigning over our kingdoms and over these kingdoms. And as we close, I wanna invite our worship team back up. And there's this old hymn titled, The Handwriting on the Wall. And the chorus says, "'Tis the hand of God on the wall, shall the record be found wanting, or shall the record be found trusting, while that hand is writing on the wall." And I asked you at the beginning, would you want to know your number of days? And if so, what would you do? Would it change the way you lived? Now, some of you may have resonated with what I say. I doubt many of you did. Maybe more of you related to what Holly said, grabbing life by the tail, having a living funeral. Maybe you had other thoughts that popped into your head, but let me ask this in a different way. If your time was up, would you be content or secure in the place that God finds you? Are you embracing this culture, secured in the things that this world has to offer, or are you taking a risk, placing your hope and faith in the one that gives us eternal security? Lord, on our day, may we all be found trusting in you, O sovereign King who rules over all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each one here. 
that many are here whose heart is far from you, Lord. I pray that you would keep inviting, keep drawing them closer to you, Lord. For those that are secure in the faith, may we be found in a posture of prayer, worshiping and serving our Lord, being ready to be used by you. Lord, would you save someone? May hope be found in you. May they see that their need is in and can only be met by you. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. that we can have true eternal security when we place our faith and trust in you. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.